The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in December 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the Tony Award-winning writer, David Henry Wong. Welcome, David. Great. Thanks for having me. Let me just run through a few of your your, uh, credits. You are certainly known for M. Butterfly in 1988, for which you did win the Tony Award, the Drama Desk Award, the Outer Critics Circle Award, and the John Gassner Award, also were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Other Broadway shows include Face Value, which we'll talk about, a show that never opened, uh, Golden Child, for which you were nominated for the Tony one of the writers of the book of Aida, a Tony nomination for your book for Flower Drum Song, the recent Disney show Tarzan, Off-Broadway, the Obie Award for FOB, the Pulitzer nomination for The Dance and the Railroad, Family Devotions, Sound and Beauty, Rich Relations, and your current show, which is currently running at uh, the Public Theater in Lower Manhattan, Yellowface. I want to read from a, a flyer I picked up in the lobby of the, of the theater. These okay. are the things that they hand out to people to get you to come see the show. It says, quote, a backstage comedy from the Tony Award-winning author of M. Butterfly that is definitely, sort of, not entirely autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> The centric, uh, central character is named D.H.H., which just happened to be your initials. Yeah, funny coincidence. Yeah, and it's it's based somewhat on you, I guess. Yeah, um, this is a um, kind of a stage mockumentary in some ways um, about a character that uh, does have my name and also did some things that I did, such as write in Butterfly, uh, I participated in a protest in 1990 uh, against the casting of the Welsh actor Jonathan Price as the Eurasian pimp in the Broadway musical Miss Saigon when it first came to uh, New York, um, and uh, a few other things that I did as well. And yet there are also things in the show that are, are fictional. So I think it's kind of an unreliable memoir. But uh, the the basic story, Yellow Face, is about a man who basically puts on a yellow makeup and pretends to be an Asian in the in, in the show Miss Saigon. Right. I mean, Yellow Face. Uh, it's easy easy to understand the term if you kind of compare it to blackface. We know what uh, blackface is a white person, you know, putting on black makeup and uh, uh, imitating an African American for what you speak uh, minstrel shows. And Yellow Face is the equivalent when a white person plays an Asian. Um, I think what the play Yellowface is about is um, different different manifestations of Yellowface, not only playing Asian on stage, but also playing Asian offstage, a white person playing, pretending to be Asian offstage, or at least part Asian. Um, an Asian American can take on an ethnic identity um, so completely and be so dedicated to it that an Asian person can be in Yellowface. And... Um, the government and the media can look at an Asian person and see yellow face in terms of associating the actual person with a lot of the different um, stereotypes of uh, being uh, being foreigners, being uh, sneaky, unreliable, um, disloyal to the U.S., a lot of those stereotypes that are associated with the yellow face portrayals that we once saw in uh, movies and, and television. I guess we can think of the old Charlie Chan movies in which a Caucasian played an Asian role. Right. Um, for a long time, um, almost all uh, um, Asians in the movies were played by Caucasians, not only Charlie Chan, but uh, the Fu Manchu movies are certainly well known. Um, and then there are, you know, a fair number of 
pretty prominent um, uh, Western actors who have done yellow face in movies, whether it's Catherine Hepburn or Marlon Brando. Um, it was just the thing that people did at a certain point in, in history. And it was not considered offensive in those days by the general public? Uh, certainly not. No, I think the general public just accepted it. And uh, at by the time you get to this sort of Miss Saigon controversy in 1990, you, we, we sort of hit a point where the society is in a transition. And the, the that debate was to some extent over, well, is yellow face still acceptable in 1990? And was it offensive to Asian Americans back then when this was being done? Um. I don't know that Asian America. First of all, you know, if you go back to those early movies, um, say T.S. of the August Moon, or you know, even in the '60s, Mickey Rooney uh, playing Japanese in Breakfast at Tiffany, or in the '70s, uh, David Carradine uh, doing Kane and Kung Fu. Um, you know, Asian Americans weren't. First of all, really, we didn't call ourselves Asian Americans back then. We didn't. We hadn't really organized around the the notion of uh, st- standing up or, or uh, for things that we've found offensive so much. Um, so I think that individually, I mean, I remember I grew up, you know, I was born in the late 50s. And as a kid, I know that whenever there was a television show or a, a movie that featured Asian characters, I would kind of make it a point not to watch it. Um, and I didn't understand exactly why, but I just kind of knew that it made me feel bad. And it was only sort of, you know, as a college student and in young adulthood that I started to try and get to the get to the the, the, the roots of why um, I was bothered by all this. You already spoke about the fact that there are parts of the play that are from your real life and others that are invented. In writing a play that combines facts of your life, elements of fact perhaps from other people's lives or other stories, and then complete invention. Do you worry that people are going to come to this play in some cases and not know ultimately what's real and what's not real? Well, I think um, there are advantages and disadvantages to that. Um, Certainly, one of the things that the play is about is uh, what's real, what's false, what's authentic, what's inauthentic, and how how kind of blurry and porous the lines are between those different categories. So part of the method of the play uh, reflects that theme, and therefore there is this confusion, I think, uh, presumably in the viewer about what's real and what's not real. Um, at the end of the play, um, we expose a, an important uh, plot element as uh, not having been real. Um, and I think that sort of tells the audience that um, it's not to take at face value, as it were, um, a lot of the events that they've seen in the play. Um, and so I think those are the the pluses of the method. The uh, disadvantage is, yeah, I mean, it's possible that people will come away from the play uh, thinking certain things about me. I mean, the character, it's named DHH, is uh, kind of the the butt of the jokes of, of most of the show and, and doesn't behave in uh, a particularly admirable manner through most of the show. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm really just kind of playing with the persona. I mean, when you're fortunate enough to achieve some degree of, um, of being known, um, what what ends up being produced is kind of a persona, the way that people perceive that image to the extent they perceive it at all. But uh, uh, And and that doesn't uh, 
playing with the persona doesn't really seem to me like I'm playing with myself because, you know, one is never really one's persona anyway. Yet, certainly many playwrights over the years have put surrogates on stage with different names but who are fairly easily identifiable as a version of the playwright themselves at some point in, in their life. You did make the decision to say, this is David Henry Wong. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as you say, autobiographical plays are fairly common in the theater. It's just that most of the time we don't name the character after ourselves. Um, in making the decision to do so, in this case, uh, it was prompted by a couple of things. First of all, that the play is bookended by two uh, events that were uh, in the media and are fairly easy to um, to access, one being the, um, the protest against Jonathan Price and Miss Saigon, and the second being... Um, a front-page article in the New York Times in the late 90s that accused my father of laundering money for China and that also mentioned me. And so a lot of the play is about um, how things are reflected in the media and how the media reflects things and the ways in which we love the media and we want to be in the papers. Um, and at the same time, it's, a, it's really a double-edged sword. So it's, it seemed to me that because I was using these public events in which a David Henry Huang was featured, um, it made sense for me to actually use my name. The other thing that I found was interesting is once it's tricky to write an autobiographical character because lots of times the autobiographical characters in plays uh, tend to be not as well fleshed out. I mean, I think of even in great plays like uh, A Long Day's Journey into Night, you could argue Jamie, is, uh, which, who's based on uh, Eugene O'Neill, the author, uh, that Jamie is uh, less well-developed than the other characters. Or in Tennessee Williams, uh, The Glass Menagerie, Tom, the autobiographical character in that play, is less well-fleshed out. So it's sometimes hard to get a perspective on yourself when you're trying to tell the absolute truth. What I found was that by naming the character after myself, it uh, paradoxically gave me the um, freedom to just kind of make him a character. And I felt very liberated by the decision. And I think I've, I've come to feel that it's a little bit like, you know, actors who, who have appeared nude on stage um, often talk about the fact that it's intimidating at first uh, when, you know, when they're about to, to go out on stage or take off their clothes or whatever they do. And, but once they're out on stage, they actually find it very kind of liberating. And maybe that's the equivalent for a writer, naming the character after yourself. Since you gave the particular examples of Tennessee Williams in Class Menagerie, where he was writing some version of his mother, and Long Day's Journey and Tonight, where certainly O'Neill was writing versions of his parents, in addition to writing about yourself, you do make your father an important character in this play. And I'm wondering how you approached that, because, again, it's not entirely a historical portrayal of your father, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, I, you know, my father has appeared in various guises in many of my plays, and I suppose that it's, you know, it's uh, many American playwrights, particularly uh, men, have uh, a thing about writing about their fathers and and their and father son relationships. Um, and this play, I actually began before my father passed away. Um, he passed away a little over two years ago. Um, and I finished the first draft of it about two and a half years ago. He had been sick for a while, so it was, um, you know, it was looking like the end was sort of inevitable, um, and I probably began to process all that by writing the play. So before my father died, he actually saw an early draft of the play, um, and in the show, he's, um, I think, a very 
uh, funny figure, very comical figure, bigger than life, uh, very proud, um, uh, not particularly sensitive, um, and very much in love with this vision of America and his perception of the American dream. Um, and I think it says a lot about who my father was that w- when he read the first draft, he actually really liked the way he was portrayed because, um, you know, there are some people who might look at the play and go, wow, you know, that's um, would 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 your father have have liked that um, version of himself? And and he was a you know, he was a big character in life. And he liked the fact that he became a big character in the play. Hmm. Well, writing about yourself, writing about your father did you learn anything about yourself? Did you learn anything about your father, about your relationship? Um, I think that I always, you know, write a play because there's something that I don't understand, and the play helps me to to learn how I feel about um, a particular subject or a particular situation um, kind of more deeply in my unconscious. And I have probably struggled through most of my life with just my father's vision of America. Um, and as somebody who, uh, he's, he was an immigrant. Um, he came to uh, America in, in, the, uh, in 1950 when he was 21 years old. And he uh, was one of these people who became a, a self-made, you know, successful businessman. Um, and he was very pro-America. He believed in America. He loved America. America had always been his goal and his vision and his dream, even when he was a kid in Shanghai, he kind of fell in love with America by seeing American movies. Now, you know, cut to me being born um, in Los Angeles uh, as an American and then growing up in kind of the 60s and 70s and becoming kind of politicized in that era, becoming identified with identity politics and um, I had a different vision of America. America didn't seem quite so uh, a, a benign to me. Uh, America didn't seem like only a place with open arms. I was sort of always more conscious of uh, the ways in which the American dream didn't work for everybody and the ways in which there were racism in society. And uh, there was racism in society. And so I think by writing the play, I've come to realize that um, the I, I, I actually have more in common with my father's vision of America than I thought I did. Um, and at the end of the play, I think that's uh, what happens to the DHH character as well, that he comes to realize that, particularly with his father's passing, he needs to he, it, it becomes incumbent upon him to incorporate his father's vision into his own vision, not to necessarily accept it wholesale, but to understand what elements of it really do apply to his own life, th- th- what elements he really believes in, what elements are already a part of him, whether he knew it or not. Your alter ego, DHH, is the central figure. Your father is one of the main figures in the show. Your mother was a pianist and a music teacher, but there's only a fleeting reference or two to her. Yes, and my mother is extremely happy that she's not in the show more. (laughs) How did you choose who to include and who not? Your mother is is not much in it. Your wife, who is in the cast, Mm -hmm. is not in it at all. Right. uh, My wife uh, acts, as you say, in the show and uh, at one point plays my mother. So it's very, you know, Chinatown, (laughs) my wife, my mother. Um, Or Greek, depending on your (laughs) position. Uh, And, you know, she likes to say she's in the show, but she's not in the show. Um, I think it was really about trying to follow the story of this character, DHH, and how his 
um, his, his uh, association and his belief in uh, what was called and what still gets called today identity politics, that is the politics of race and the degree to which he identifies with being an Asian American and that is his his whole vision of himself, how that slowly starts to get chipped away. And it allowed me to also look at, um, you know, the whole identity politics movement and the ways in which, yeah, it was useful in some ways and it was flawed in some ways. Um, and as I began to try to deconstruct that, um, it made the most sense to, you know, I could take a a, 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 a fictional character who's um, uh, a, an ethnic role model and begin to kind of poke holes in that figure and have some fun with that figure. But it was another reason to just make it myself because uh, that way I could I w- wasn't offending anyone but myself. Um, so it was following that was the sort of method of the play, and therefore as I as I went along. Um, it made more sense for DHH to remain single because it, it kept him kind of more focused on his identity as an Asian American as opposed to, you know, I, I'm a father and I have two kids and you get a lot of other identities. You become a father and, and it, it um, but he could, he didn't, DHH doesn't have much else except his uh, identity as an Asian American uh, role model and political figure and he's so desperate to hold on to it. And it becomes more and more, as the play goes on, of a sham, of uh, a shell, um, of a mask. Um, and that was the story I wanted to tell. So then that determined you know, who was going to be in the play and who wasn't. Well, you speak of the character as an Asian-American role model. By age 23, the New York Times was writing an article about you headlined, quote, I write plays to claim a place for Asian-Americans. That's pretty heady stuff. How did you get to that position so quickly? How did you get started as a playwright? Um, I have a very... uh, I I was really lucky. I mean, I think I'm a good writer, but um, there are a lot of good... You know, most good writers, uh, it just takes a while longer, and I got a series of lucky breaks. Um, Essentially, I didn't really see my first straight play until I was um, a senior in high school, we did, uh, in my high school, we did Arthur Kopitz Indians, and that was the first straight play I ever saw. It's sort of progressive high school. Um, <laughs> and then uh, my freshman year in college, um, we, I, I went to college in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, we went up to, you know, we would go on dorm trips up to um, American Conservatory Theater, ACT. And I remember seeing uh, The Matchmaker, Thornton Wilder's play. Um, I saw Winter's Tale. And a part of me just thought, Oh, I think I can do that. Um, and I found a professor who was willing to take a look at... So I, I started writing plays in my spare time. I found a professor who was willing to take a look at them, and he told me they were really bad, which they were. Uh, and I, I had the desire to write plays, but I didn't actually know anything about the theater. So that same professor became kind of my independent study guide uh, for my next three or four years there, and we designed a playwriting major because the, the uh, school that I was going to didn't have one. Uh, my senior year... I wrote a play to be done in my dorm, uh, which was FOB, my first play eventually to make it to New York, um, simply because uh, I went to a school where people did shows in the dorms in the spring, and they were normally uh, musicals, but I thought this was an opportunity for me to see some of my work, uh, to hear some of my work. 
Uh, I then also sent it to the Eugene O'Neill National Playwriting Conference, which happens every year in Waterford, Connecticut. Um, and they that year received, I think, about twelve or 1,300 different submissions uh, and chose 12 scripts to work on. And I was really lucky that, was, uh, that my script got chosen. And so once you get to go to the O'Neill, you start to be, come to the attention of, um, of the New York theater community. People go up there and they, they read the scripts and see the, see the readings. Um, and then I was also a beneficiary of affirmative action because um, the year, let's see, in uh, 1978, um, there was a play done at the public theater called New Jerusalem by Len Jenkins. And in that play, um, a Caucasian actor was cast in an Asian role, um, predating the Miss Saigon protest by some 12 years. Uh, that also caused a protest, a much smaller protest. Um, and some Asian-American actors and theater people went in and protested in front of the public theater. Um, Joe Papp was still running the public at that time. And Joe, being sort of um, progressive and interested in all this stuff, uh, he called the protesters into his office and uh, subsequently hired one of them onto his staff, a guy named David Oyamo, um, to look for plays that would feature Asian actors. So just about that time, my play, FOB, gets done at the O'Neill. My director at, at the O'Neill, by sheer coincidence, uh, all, all the plays get professional directors and, and productions and actors from New York. My director was a guy named Robert Allen Ackerman, who at the time was a resident director for Joe Papp at The Public. So Bob brought the play to Joe. Uh, we did a reading of it, and Joe decided to produce it. Um, and, and, then, and you're how old? And I was... 22 at the time. Um, and then another uh, a great piece of luck was that um, when we opened the play at the public in the Martinson, the same place that we're, the same space that we're doing Yellowface in now, um, there, the, guy, the critic who was assigned from the New York Times was a new critic, and nobody knew anything about him. Well, it turned out to be Frank Rich, and this was like his first or second review for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, he liked the play, um, and became a, a great champion during the time that he was the, the critic. So uh, things happened for me very quickly through a variety of fortuitous circumstances. And we should mention that FOB is an acronym meaning fresh, fresh off the boat. Fresh off the boat, yes. And it's about the assimilation of Chinese Americans? Yeah, FOB or fresh off the boat is sort of a derogatory term that uh, quote unquote ABCs or American born Chinese uh, use about uh, uh, new immigrants. And yeah, it's, it's about kind of conflict between FOBs and ABCs and. Um, other Chinese-American subjects. There was a real flurry of plays. You were producing plays at a pretty fast rate at that point because FOB, Dance on the Railroad, Family Devotions, these were all coming up in just a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I I often think how much, in a sense, how much easier it was, uh, even in 1980, for a young writer to get started. I mean, in between the time that I did FOB in my dorm and, um, and the time that it opened off-Broadway at the Public Theater um, was was um, a little more than a year. It was like a, about 14 months. Um, and, you know, I try to mentor younger writers now and, and be involved with them, and it's just so much harder to get a production than it was. Uh, and, um, yes, and then subsequently FOB was well-received and um, won an OB. And then Joe sort of said that he'd produce anything I wrote. And 
again, to be able to have that kind of home and that kind of support uh, in my early 20s, I mean, who gets that? Um, so I feel like I, you know, it's I was able to get out of the starting gate very quickly. Well, why do you think it's harder now to get produced for, for a young playwright? I think there are a variety of reasons. I mean... I in in 1980 the so-called not-for-profit theater uh, movement was still expanding, um, and you still had a situation where uh, the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, the the their budget was growing from year to year, and theaters were being founded all around the country. So you essentially had um, a field that was growing. Uh, by the time you hit the kind of uh, you know mid mid to late 80s and into the 90s, you get into what's sometimes called the culture wars, where um, the NEA was attacked uh, by the right wing and almost almost eliminated. Um, it was not eliminated, but certainly um, crippled, I think, as the sort of force that it was um, in the 60s through the, through the early 80s. And so you have a field that it is not expanding so much anymore. And then the not-for-profit theaters need to find ways to make money. Um, and I and at the same time, Broadway starts booming. Um, so the not-for-profit theaters become, I think, more... They start to take the place to a large extent of the old out-of-town tryout uh, houses. Um, you used to do, you know, in the 20s and 30s or whatever, the 50s, um, you would do a show bound for Broadway and you'd go to a commercial house in New Haven or Boston, you'd try it out there, and then you'd bring it to Broadway. Um, nowadays, you tend to try them out at not-for-profit houses. So there's that sort of pressure on the not-for-profit houses to be um, to be more commercial, and then they also became professionalized. They were, you know, they were very kind of freewheeling institutions at one point, and usually in not particularly financially stable, and just kind of doing what they felt like doing. And, you know, to some extent, they had to become more professionalized. So I understand that. But it also limits the amount of risk-taking that, that they can do. And finally, I feel like there's simply the uh, the tyranny of the baby boom, which is that, um, you know, the baby boom playwrights who kind of came up during that period, including myself, um, a lot of us are still around and we're still taking up slots. Um, and they're and there maybe one could argue fewer slots in major American theaters for new plays than there were, say, in 1980. So, uh, you know, we're taking up slots, and and that means fewer opportunities for new um, young writers to have their work produced. So, I think it's much harder to be a young playwright now. You had this series of off-Broadway successes. <laughs> How did M Butterfly find its way to Broadway? M Butterfly. Went to, came to Broadway because um, a producer named Stuart Ostro um, was brave or foolhardy enough, depending on how one looks at it, to decide that this play, which was not considered to be a particularly smart commercial prospect at the time, um, could could be a Broadway play. Was this something that Joe Papp had said he wanted to do, or had um, you not shown it no, to him? No. At that point, I... Uh, the One... Uh, the life cycle of a playwright at the public under Joe was um, tended to be somewhat circumscribed, um, so that uh, I had about you know three or four good years when I was kind of Joe's playwright, and then um, we we never really had a 
a falling out as such. I think he just sort of became interested in some other playwrights. Um, so Joe wasn't so much doing my work at the time that I had the idea for M. Butterfly. And honestly, um, I, the story is, I, I mean, I saw a uh, newspaper article and someone told me at a party about, you know, did you hear um, about the French diplomat who had a 20-year affair with a Chinese actress who turned out to be A, a spy, and B, a man in drag? And I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. And my original notion for it was that it was going to be a musical. Um, and I had known Stuart Ostro because um, Stuart had produced many musicals, uh, uh, but not straight plays at that point in his career, um, most notably Pippin and 1776. And Stuart and I had been working on a musical version of Man's Fate, the Andre Milhereau, um novel, that was going to be uh, with music by Philip Glass, uh, directed by Hal Prince. And that never happened. Uh, but I knew Stuart because of that. So when I came up with this idea and thought it was a musical, I kind of wrote my notions down in a couple pages and sent them to Stuart, um, who was then, you know, who was excited by the idea and uh, helped me do some research, provided some early funding. Um, and then I'd never written a musical. And I didn't know people who wrote musicals. And I was living in L.A. and I just, I didn't know. I was like, well, how am I supposed to find a composer or something? So I, and I, so I just wrote it as a play. Um and then at that point, I sent it to Stuart more or less as a courtesy because I figured he wouldn't be interested in producing it. Um, and he decided that he did want to produce this play and do it on Broadway. And he didn't say at any point, let's turn it into a musical. I know a composer who can who can write it. No, that conversation <laughs> never happened. <laughs> Fortunately. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it, it's thematically somewhat based on Madame Butterfly, the, uh, the uh, opera. Yeah. I was thinking about this spy story. Um, and uh, as I said, I was living in L.A. at the time. Um, and I, re- I remember I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard, and I thought to myself, well, what did this French diplomat think that he'd found? And the answer came to me, oh, he probably thought he'd found some version or his version of Madame Butterfly. And at that point, I didn't even really – I'd never even heard Madame Butterfly. Um, I just kind of knew it as a as a cultural icon. Um, so I pulled into a record store, which existed in those days, and um, you know bought the, the the box set of Madame Butterfly and began to look over the libretto, and it seemed kind of perfect for the story that I was going to tell. So the idea of kind of dovetailing the events of the spy story and the plot of Madame Butterfly and and deconstructing Madame Butterfly, as it were, seemed to me to be uh, an interesting way to 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 do this play. You were the first Asian American to have a play produced on Broadway. Uh, yeah, actually, I've I was curious about this one year and um, asked um, Peter Felicia, uh, who's the, the uh, critic for the New Jersey. Um, um, for, he's online. He's and, on. Th- he's on Theater Mania yeah. and and one of the Jersey um, papers. And yeah. uh, because he's knows so, you know, he's he's a really great kind of theater historian. I asked him, is there anyone, has there ever been a play on Broadway, not only by an Asian American, but also, you know, even anyone from Asia? Um, and evidently not. We can't seem to come up with anything. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess that made me first. And ultimately, it made you an incredible figure 
in the Asian American community for being the first and for the acclaim for the show, of course, which obviously becomes a theme even now in Yellowface. Has that been an opportunity or has it at times been a burden? Um, it's both. I mean, all things being equal, yeah, you'd rather I'd rather be um uh you know, successful and and known and have an opportunity to be heard. Um so on balance, it's a good thing, but there are certainly um challenges and disadvantages. I mean, I feel like really from the time as you mentioned that uh, I did FOB and and the New York Times, you know, so, so was sort of gave the headline about I write plays to claim a place for Asian Americans. Um, at that time, there weren't that many Asian American writers who were prominent, and simply because of the dearth, um, the, I ended up sort of being the official Asian American for a while, you know. And then later on, Amy Tan was the official Asian American for a while, um, and. And it's a big burden because you kind of are being asked to speak for an entire community. And you learn at a certain point that, well, it's not possible to speak for an entire community because no ethnic community is monolithic. Um, Just as people see reality in different ways from different ethnic groups, so within an ethnic group, there are all sorts of different uh, perceptions about their own experience, as there should be. And so... However, when there aren't that many spokespeople out there, um, everybody in the community thinks that that spokesperson should represent their point of view, um, which is, is is an impossible task. So um, at a certain point, I just decided, well, you know, I have to just speak for myself, and I will be representing a point of view as an Asian American because I am an Asian American, um, and then... Um, you know, probably being criticized as part of the job. But you're you're a chi- of Chinese heritage yes. as opposed to Japanese or any other Asian. Right. So is there any sort of a difference within the, the, the Asian community as to your viewpoints versus other perhaps Asian viewpoints? I think there is. And I think that distinction between different um, Asian American groups, in my opinion, has become more um, visible and more recognized, uh, of, say, in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, when I was first starting out in the early 80s, um, not only were we kind of perceived monolithically by mainstream society uh, as a whole, but we ourselves were kind of pushing that notion. We, are, you know, we invented the idea of Asian American, which was a lot of people feel it was, the term was sort of first used at um, a protest in the San Francisco um, Third World Student Strikes, San Francisco State, in 1968. So it was a term that was invented to kind of create a, a, a kind of socio-political group, which, and the creation of that group had certain advantages. I mean, it allowed us to become kind of stronger politically, and in fact, there are some ways in which my experience as a Chinese American are more similar to uh, a Japanese Americans than say a Chinese national, someone who's living in China, uh, but there are also flaws in that method too. And I think um, the, the the sort of flaws and the inconsistencies are 
of all these ideas are things that I tend to explore comically in Yellowface. I remember uh, Leia Salonga on this program uh, talking about how when she was cast for Miss Saigon, she's Filipina, uh, saying she has oval-shaped eyes and therefore was not really true to what the character was supposed to be. And I don't think that most people made that distinction, but, you know, she, in a sense, was kind of amazed that, you know, here she was not fully representing the character because of Mm -hmm. her own physical characteristics. Well, and I think, again, it's because... When you have a community that doesn't have too many figures out there that stand for them in the media, everybody projects what they want and and has their own demands of what that character and figure should or shouldn't do and look like and everything. As we talk about you as a spokesman for this polyglot community, Obviously, your choice to make a public statement about the casting of Miss Saigon at the time that you did carried an awful lot of weight. It would still carry weight again today. Would you do again what you did if that situation arose again in terms of speaking out against casting? Well, it kind of – now that the Miss Saigon thing has happened, I don't know that I would – feel that I need to do it, I would need to do it again. Had it, you know, since we're talking hypotheticals, had it never happened and it was just coming again uh, up for the first time now, yeah, I would probably speak again. It was an incredibly kind of traumatic experience um, for everybody um, and, you know, myself included. Um, And I think I've been struggling with what it all meant for the last 20 years, which led to not only uh, my 1993 Broadway flop Face Value, which is referred to in Yellowface, but also, you know, this play Yellowface. Um, because really, you know, casting is a very complicated issue. These, these kind of, whether you call it non-traditional casting or whatever you want to, however you want to term it, it's, it's kind of a, su- there's a lot of subtleties and nuances to the issue. And what I found was so kind of frightening was once it got out into the media and became kind of a culture war event, okay, it was only a culture war event for two weeks, but they were pretty intense two weeks. Um, the, it really devolved into a media smackdown almost immediately where it became, you know, this is, these, these are the sides. Um, they, uh, uh, they're, antagonistic towards each other, who's going to win, like it was a sporting event. And it really made it impossible to discuss the issue in any depth. We keep speaking of face value, obviously a show perhaps more spoken of than seen, we'd have to say. Um, Why do you think that show didn't succeed? Um, Face value was an attempt, somewhat like Yellowface, to do a comedy of mistaken racial identity. But it was more in uh, face uh, yellow faces, kind of in a mockumentary form. Um, face value was a kind of Fado style farce. Um, I think it. I actually think I didn't. Um, I take the responsibility for the fact that it didn't succeed. I feel like I didn't get it right. I needed more time. I mean, farce is hard, <laughs> and um, I think that I. And it was, you know, my follow-up to M. Butterfly, and I probably was uh, had some hubris and thought that I could fix the play in four weeks, and I couldn't. Speaking of face, whether it be yellow face or face value, the closing line of yellow face refers to the concept of face, the Chinese concept. I'm not talking about, you know, a Caucasian playing mm-hmm. an Asian. What is that concept of face that you refer to in yellow face? 
Um, well, I describe it in the play as um, the the idea that the face we choose to show the world reveals who we true who we really are, um, and you know the. Chinese or people talking about Chinese and Chinese themselves refer a lot to this notion of face. It's usually about losing face or gaining face. Um, you know, if your kids do well in school, they give you face. Um, and uh, if you're, you know, accused by the New York Times of uh, laundering money, you uh, you lose face. Um, and I was trying to kind of boil it down to a sentence, uh, which is, you know, the, the, what I just said, because it's not quite saying that what we how we choose to portray ourselves is the truth it's saying that how we choose to portray ourselves says something about who we are and there is some truth in it um which is kind of a, a, a subtler notion your next play to reach broadway was golden child another look at the history of of chinese and dealt very specifically with the role of women in that culture. What what drew you to that topic? Um, that is based on this, um, my family history. And when I was um, 10, my maternal grandmother, uh, who was sort of the family historian, became ill. And we thought she was going to pass away. And I thought if that happened, it would be doubly tragic because not only would she be lost but her stories would be lost so I was you know I, I lived in LA and my grandmother at the time was living in the Philippines uh, I asked my parents if I could spend a summer with her doing oral histories uh, which I didn't know, I didn't call them oral histories but you know uh, and they said yes and I went over there and um, had a tape recorder and taped all her stories and subsequently kind of wrote them into a 90-page, you know, nonfiction novel about the history of my family, which got a Xeroxed and passed around and got very good reviews. And then um, and then I didn't, didn't really think about that story for a long time. Uh, when I went to write Golden Child, in some sense, I thought it was kind of a collaboration with my 10-year-old self. I was basing a play on this uh, uh, novel that I'd written as a kid. And going back to these events um, and seeing how I looked at them differently. And the, the, the essential story was about how my great-grandfather converted to Christianity in China in the 20s and the effect that that had on his three wives because he, they lived in a polygamous society. Um, so probably that was all motivated by the fact that I was um, anticipating becoming a father and so the play is to some extent about how you navigate the old and the new um, and past generations and future generations as you move through your life. You said before, in relation to Yellowface, that your mother is kind of relieved that she's not in the play. Mm -hmm. And you also made reference that your father is included in one way or another. Some, some, many of your characters have been based on, on, your, on your father. Now you're talking about other family members. What has been the reaction of your family to your, to your work? Um, well, you know, in general, I feel like my father always liked being in my plays. My, I mean, it's sort of the same as it is with the yellow face. Uh, my mother never liked being in, in them. And um, I think they, because I did, I wrote an autobiographical fa family play fairly early. Uh, my third play to be done at the public was called Family Devotions. And that was... Um, 
an autobiographical play, and, and many of my relatives were in it. And it was not particularly flattering. Um, and I feel like they kind of got inoculated against being too offended because everything that's come after has been uh, less upsetting to them than family devotions. So they're fine with it. During the 1980s and the 90s, your work was primarily about Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, then 2000, Aida on Broadway, you were one of the three authors of that. Mm-hmm. Um, had you been tempted during the 80s or 90s to get beyond an Asian theme? And was Aida a way to get into a, a different area? I mean, I have always kind of, uh, as early as 86, um, I did a play called Rich Relations, which was my first play with non-Asian characters. Uh-huh. Um, and that was not successful. But that was because kind of I wrote an autobiographical play and then just made them all white. Um, <laughs> and so that lacked a certain authenticity, too. Um, but, you know, I I did feel like everything that I do is going to be have an Asian-American perspective in some sense because I'm an Asian-American. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I would only write about Asian characters. Um, and really, my first forays... Uh, into that were in opera. Um, I worked with Philip Glass on uh, a couple operas, um, one about uh, called A Thousand Airplanes on the Roof, about um, a person who was abducted by um, aliens, uh, UFO-type aliens. Um, And then uh, we did an opera at the Met in 92 called The Voyage for the Columbus Quincentennial. Um, And when Aida came around, um, honestly, I went to Disney because... Uh, perhaps predictably, I was kind of interested in adapting Mulan. I always liked Mulan. Um, And they said, um, well, we're not necessarily interested in that, but do you want to rewrite Aida? And I thought about it for a while, and um, I figured, you know, it would be a really interesting journey. I mean, at the time, Aida had come out of Atlanta, um, been done in Atlanta, and they had decided to scrap everything, basically, um, except um, the Elton John, uh, Tim Rice songs, uh, and hire a whole new team. And so it was not by any means uh, something that was looking like it was going to be successful. It was sort of a salvage job. Um, but I thought, this is one of those moments where if I don't go on this journey, I'll always wonder what it would have been like. So I thought I should do it for that reason. And then also, frankly, there was something kind of great about Disney of all people not looking at me as an Asian American writer and just looking at me as somebody who had, you know, who was a a playwright who had some skills that they thought might be useful. After the experience of Aida, you you seem to to slip into the musical world for a while Mm -hmm. and rewriting Flower Drum Song. You mentioned early on in this conversation that you often would look away from portrayals of, of Asian characters. Um, clearly, Flower Drum Song was probably one of the better known portrayals of, of Asian American life, however accurate or inaccurate it was. How did you uh, decide to, to get involved in, in well, rehabilitating that show? <laughs> Well, Flower Drum Song actually was one of the ones that I, d- I liked as a kid um, because it um, it did even I mean the original did some things that are kind of revolutionary even today. Um, you had an actual romance between an Asian man and an Asian woman, which you still don't see much in in television and, and movies. Uh, you had a strong, handsome uh, Asian male romantic lead. You had characters that were uh, particularly the kids' generation 
that were clearly American. Um, and and you had all this great Rodgers and Hammerstein music and, and wonderful dancing. So I kind of liked it as a kid. Um, Flyer Drum Song then kind of fell out of favor, um, both in terms of mainstream theater that uh, tended to think it was kind of clunky and outdated, um, and in terms of Asian Americans thinking that it was stereotypical and it was the sort of thing that in the 80s, those of us who were Asian American artists tended to we were reacting to uh, the notion of our stories being told by non-Asians. Um, so it kind of fell into disfavor uh, during that period for a number of reasons. And I actually had the idea of um, doing a new version of Flower Drum Song. Why did it need a new version? Well, I think that I'll, if you just... let's take it out of the Asian realm for a moment and just look at um, it wasn't exactly being done by anybody it wasn't like mainstream uh, uh, critics and, and um, theaters and producers were thinking oh Flower Drum Song really needs a revival it was kind of this odd anomaly in the Rodgers and Hammerstein canon in that you have the, the great Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals that everybody knows and that are done around uh, South Pacific and Oklahoma King and I etc Um and then you have a few of their musicals that didn't work, that didn't succeed, uh, Me and Juliet and Allegro. Uh, and then Flower Drum Song is, was a musical that was successful in its time, but somehow didn't manage to live on. And I think that whether people thought the book was clunky or they thought that it was stereotypical, people felt that there was some problem with it. Um, so I think that that's why... I, at the time I started to think about redoing Flower Drum Song, um, there were sort of a spate of so-called revisicals, that is, um, uh, musicals where the songs were kept and the basic plot were kept in most cases, but new books were written. So I started thinking about, you know, Flower Drum Song is the only musical or the only Broadway show that's ever been done about Asian Americans. There are a number of them about Asians in Asia, but in terms of Asian Americans, Flower Drum Song is it. And as a huge part of our history as Asian Americans, whether we liked it or not, uh, both in terms of loving it and in terms of, of disliking it. So the idea of reclaiming it and trying to bring it back and do it again and make it uh, give it life uh, seemed incredibly appealing to me. And so I went to um, at the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization, um, Ted Chapin, and, uh, who, who's, uh, who's the president, and Mary Rogers, the daughter of Richard Rogers. And they were very open to the idea of doing this, uh, probably because um, Flower Drum Song had kind of fallen off the radar. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's not like they were going to let someone rewrite, you know, Oklahoma. Um so that's kind of how I got involved with that. I read somewhere that you kind of um, characterized the, the the rewrite that you did as the kind of book that Oscar Hammerstein would have written had he been born Asian, Asian-American. Yeah, I feel like I was misquoted on that, and it keeps oh. coming back up. What I said was not that I felt that I had done the book that, that Hammerstein would have done written if he'd been Asian. I said that I tried to write the book uh -huh. that Hammerstein would, would have written had he been Asian. That is, I tried... It was my goal to do something that would kind of honor what he did, but also um, reflect more contemporary kind of cultural values. And just the fact that the, you know, forget about Asians for a moment. Look at just 
uh, uh, mainstream culture in general. People just know more about Asia and about Asian people and Asian American people than they did in 1958. Um, so the idea of trying to do something that reflects that and also that felt like a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, that was my goal. Well, when the show opened on Broadway, it had been well-received out of town. The mm-hmm. critics liked it. Here in New York, there was kind of like mixed reviews of it. And I guess many of the negative reviews were, how could you tamper with this this, this, this chestnut, this wonderful Rodgers and Hammerstein show? What was the reaction of the Asian community, the Asian-American community to the show? I thought it was... I think the Asian-American community was extremely supportive of Flower Drum Song. And... Um, and one of the things that really moved me was when it was running on Broadway, you would see kind of three generations of Asian Americans, uh, you know, families in, in, going in to audience. see this in the yeah. audience. And I thought that's kind of, you know, how often do we do we come across a mainstream cultural event where Asian Americans are central? Um, and so it wasn't – it was sort of wonderfully – Right, I guess, that Asian Americans embrace the show as much as they did. As we talk about the show, of course, Roger Hammerstein had long passed on, but people forget that C.Y. Lee, the author of the original novel, was still around when you worked on it. I'm wondering whether you worked with him at all and what his reaction was. Well, one of, when I decided I wanted to do this, I thought I had to do two things if this was going to go forward. Of course, I had to get the approval of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, but I also wanted to get the blessing of C.Y. Lee. Um, so I uh, tracked C.Y. down, and he uh, was living in Monterey Park, California, uh, fairly close to where my parents lived, and, um, you know, spry and fun and alert and healthy, um, and he was uh, very much present at all the different stages in the production. It was sort of a, a wonderful kind of benevolent spirit over the whole thing. You had uh, worked with Disney on Aida, then just recently Tarzan. How mm-hmm. did that? How did that come about? Was that because of your prior relationship? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, we got along well on Aida, uh, and they asked me if I wanted to do Tarzan, and I was happy to do it. Well, what did you think when they said rewrite Edgar Rice Burroughs' story and create a Broadway <laughs> well, version of Tarzan? Right. Well, I th- I thought, oh, well, I'm sort of used to tackling sacred cows, A, and B, um, you know, there's a part of me that thought, oh, well, you know, this is kind of an Asian-American story. I mean, there's a guy, and he's, you know, from one culture, but he grows up in another culture. He thinks he's part of that second culture. Then he meets some people from the original culture and has an identity crisis. I thought, I can write that. (laughs) Well, to come full circle, back to Yellowface, which is now at the public theater, um, it seems that at the end of the play, without giving anything away... um, at least the character of DHH may be moving into a new stage of thinking about life. And I'm wondering what you're looking at following Yellowface. Um, I feel like, you know, I've been associated for a lot of my career uh, and written about and been interested in what could be called multiculturalism. Um, and at, in 1980, when we all first got started, multiculturalism was a fairly new concept. Um, at this point, I feel like it's um, it's pretty much in the culture, and I I am not as interested in in it anymore. I, in some sense, it was great in a lot of ways, and it had limitations. Um, and I guess the it really what really hit home for me was during the first um, Bush administration. Um, 
you had the most multicultural cabinet in American history. And in my opinion, it was also a really bad cabinet. So it re- for me, it's like, oh, well, this is the limitations of, of that ideology. Um, and at this point, I think I'm more interested in kind of internationalism, uh, the notion that a lot of these ideas that we kind of dealt with in, in multiculturalism, that different groups see the world different ways, that there needs to be representation, uh, that cultural differences need to be understood. Um, I think it's not sufficient anymore just to look at that within our own national borders. I think we have to look at the way that we are relating to um, other cultures and other peoples in other countries. Um, and probably uh, what specifically what that means for me is I'm kind of interested in the relationship between the U.S. and China right now, which is consistent with my past work, but a little bit different. Um, Because this seems to me to be a huge um, issue for the 21st century. And I find myself traveling more to Asia now um, for a variety of reasons, um, including um, the fact that there is a, a kind of fad on right now in China, particularly Shanghai, for Broadway-style theater. And again, I happen to be the only even nominally Chinese person who's ever written a Broadway show. So I've been talking with people, and there are you know, there's sorts of ideas about doing things. And I'd like to collaborate more with um, artists in Asia um, and, and just explore how, what's going to happen with this relationship um, as, as the century continues. And do you think that the Chinese people would see you as an American or as a, as an Asian? You know, what's kind of interesting to me and, and somewhat moving is that they, they see me as a Chinese. Uh-huh. Um, I don't speak uh, Chinese. Um, I, you know, but I, I think because there's so, you know, so darn many Chinese in the world um, that China has always culturally... Uh, been very accepting of variations within Chinese. So I'm an overseas Chinese, but I'm still a Chinese. Um, And that contrasts with my friends, for instance, who are Japanese Americans and go to Japan where they're still kind of considered gaijin or outsiders uh, because they didn't grow up in that culture. But in in China, I sort of, they think of me as Chinese, which I've I found kind of moving. Kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of kind of moving, the play Yellow Face, currently at the Public Theater, written by yourself, of course. David, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. This is fun. Thank you. Thanks, David. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.